Welcome to our new series on faithful leadership. Over the next five episodes, we'll bring you in-depth conversations to help you ponder what it means to be a faithful and wise leader. Our first episode is with renowned historian and biographer, Dr. Ronald C. White, who discusses the insights he gleaned while writing his book, Lincoln and Private. Whether we know it or not, whether we talk about it or not, character might sound like an old fashioned word, but I think it's the underlying definition of who leaders are. You'll hear about the ways in which Lincoln struggled with the national, moral, and spiritual crises of his time and reflected on the possibilities of God's purposes during the Civil War. This is an edited version of our online conversation from May of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation with transcript on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes of this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. Our guest today, a presidential biographer, has spent much of his life researching and studying the character, words, and works of great leaders to better understand their story and to learn from their example. In his just released work, he unearths and analyzes a fascinating collection of personal note fragments that President Abraham Lincoln wrote mostly to himself over the course of his life in an effort to work through some of the most painful and perplexing leadership and personal challenges that he faced. And in doing so, our guest not only offers a compelling study and new insights into the thinking and character of an often misunderstood leader, but also by implication raises questions about the importance of moral character and reflection in our own time. It's a fascinating perspective and it's hard to imagine someone who could offer it with more historical insight, research expertise, or contagious enthusiasm than our guest today, presidential biographer, Ron White. Ron is the New York Times bestselling author of the presidential biographies A. Lincoln and American Ulysses on Ulysses S. Grant, as well as the author of Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the second inaugural, The Eloquent President, a portrait of Lincoln through his own words, his forthcoming work, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, a biography, and of course, his newly released work published by Random House, Lincoln in Private, what his personal reflections tell us about our greatest president, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Before doing so, I should also note with pride that Ron White is a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. Ron, welcome. Thank you, Cherie. Wonderful to be with you and everyone who's joining in. And it's a real delight and privilege to be participating again today. Well, it is great to have you here. So as we start off, Ron, I would love just to hear the story of these note fragments that you have analyzed and cataloged and include in the back of your book. What did you discover uh, when you found this trove of personal note fragments? And why did you decide that they were so significant that you needed to write a book about them? Well, in 1863, Lincoln was responding to criticism. He'd received a, what's called the Albany Resolves that were criticizing him for his role as president. And an Iowa congressman walked into his office as Lincoln was writing a letter in response. And the congressman said, oh my goodness, this is wonderful that you can simply sit down and write a letter right now. Oh, he said, no, he said, look, and there was an open drawer. He said, I have the thoughts all in there. They're a bit disconnected, but I've been saving them. Well, he'd been saving them, but we don't know that he'd been saving them. 
And so what are these notes? They are untitled, undated, and unsigned. Why? Because he never thought we would ever see them. His secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, who found them after his death, called them initially fragments. Why fragments? Because some of them are fragmentary. He ends the note in the middle of a word. He ends the note without any punctuation. It's like you and I might be working on a project and the telephone rings or the ding of the text or the email, and we leave the note. They're fragmentary. So I called the Abraham Lincoln Papers Project, a new online digital project in Springfield, and I said, how many do you think there are? And they said, well, we have 111 that have survived through all these years. I think he wrote hundreds, hundreds more. So in the book, we publish all 111 of the notes. So Ron, I'm curious. I mean, this is a fascinating discovery, and it's sort of amazing that these really interesting notes were just sort of sitting around in a library. Why? And it's not like there is a lack of Lincoln scholarship. Why did no one think to really explore and analyze this trove until now? Well, they have done with some of the notes. And the notes, of course, were spread across huge multi-volume collections of Lincoln's words, first by Nicolay and Hay, then the so-called Basler collection of the 1950s. But no one had ever looked at them together and seen what might they say. I'm suggesting in the book that here we have a portrait of the private Lincoln behind the public Lincoln. And the question that really got me started was, well, do we learn something new, something perhaps we haven't known in the traditional portraits and biographies of Lincoln? So, Ron, this is your fourth work on Lincoln, and I'm sure your fans and your readers realize that this is the third work, three out of four, that deals very explicitly with Lincoln's words. You've written about the second inaugural, you've written the eloquent president Lincoln in his own words, and now you are looking at the words essentially Lincoln wrote to himself. And I'm curious why you have picked this particular portal, this keyhole through which to look at Lincoln's character. What is it about studying his words in particular, as opposed to say, you know, his policies, the grand sweep of his life? What is it that gives you a unique view of the man through studying you know, his actual writings and speeches? Well, the 19th century, very much unlike ours, was what I would call an oral culture. Mm -hmm. Words matter. I'm afraid they don't matter so much anymore. We dash off a text, we dash off an email and just send it off. Lincoln never would have thought of doing such a thing. I have had fun in speaking about Lincoln's notes to high school students all across this country, 11th graders who were studying United States history. And I'll ask at the end of my presentation, how long do you think it took Lincoln to write these notes? And they will say three minutes, four minutes. And I say, how about an hour or two hours? In the back of the room in one particular high school, the faculty was all applauding when I said that. I said, Lincoln took time to think about words because as you suggest, Sheree, words are a portal into one's character. I think he was very much impressed with Benjamin Franklin, who kind of was charting his own moral development. So Lincoln is not simply writing about issues. He's also charting his own 
moral development, what in the 19th century, we would call it a self-important person, he would call it a self-constructed person. How is a person developing morally? Along those lines, uh, just sort of thinking more about the words, one of the things that struck, that might strike readers, at least struck this reader in yes. uh, reading through uh, the actual fragments is how, is how different the vocabulary is. Uh, you know, there have actually been different studies that have shown that the words that we favor culturally have changed over time. And actually in the last few decades have changed fairly dramatically in that you're typically, well, traditional virtue words, bravery, kindness, courage, compassion are actually used less. Individualistic words, consumerish words, and words of, of domination are actually on the upswing. And, and one of the things that I sort of noticed in his fragments is there's very little language of domination. You know, even when discussing his old and longtime rival, Stephen Douglas, the vocabulary used seems very oriented towards exploring the need for wisdom, the curiosity. And I was hoping you could share with us a little bit about Lincoln's vocabulary and word usage. Was this deliberate? Was this, was this formative or merely reflective? Did it reflect the times or is this something unique to him? Well, just cueing in on your wonderful introduction to your comment on the different language kind of an historical footnote. Some years ago, the Huntington Library, where I do my work, put on a marvelous exhibit on George Washington. The New York Review of Books had a review of the exhibit, and they said, we can review the exhibit in one word, honor, honor. That was the word that motivated Washington. We don't use that word at all anymore, honor. So you're exactly right. Lincoln is using virtue words. This is part of his own moral development. It's also part of his respect for other people. He will say, for example, in debating with Douglas, I never, I never question someone's patriotism. We are simply talking about different policies. Today, we question each other's patriotism all the time. Mm -hmm. So this is why, although Lincoln is a 19th century figure, He's not going to help us with climate change. <laughs> he can't advise President Biden on what to do in Afghanistan. I do think his virtue words can help us as we try to become people who are more in touch with values, with, as you suggest, character. This is all about development of character. Mm -hmm. And that leads, obviously, to the next question, which is, why does it matter in a sense? You are rather unique among a lot of presidential historians and biographers and that character is something you have repeatedly and explicitly emphasized and really a lens through which you have looked at the personalities of, of many of our, our great leaders. But there does seem to be a growing sense that character doesn't matter. We've had, you know, really it's not limited to one particular party. There seems to be a growing, if not consensus, certainly wave of support in both parties, that it's simply not essential any longer. You know, as someone who has made character the lens through which you've understood leaders, what do you say to those who believe that character is less important than it might have been previously? Well, as you suggest, my approach to biography is from what I call from the inside out. I'm very interested in formation. And here the Christian faith is 
tremendously central in how is a person formed. And so I wanted to discover how is Lincoln formed, how is Grant formed, how is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain formed. And I think at the end of the day, character does matter, that policies are important, but policies will come and go. Character is what is lasting. And over the long haul, whoever the person is, we don't need to think even simply of political figures, leaders in business, lawyers, teachers, presidents of colleges or universities, character is what will endure or what will actually cause a person to fall. Whether we know it or not, whether we talk about it or not, character might sound like an old fashioned word, but I think it's the underlying definition of who leaders are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one aspect of Lincoln's character that was uh, both fascinating and perhaps somewhat paradoxical was his tendency towards peacemaking. He was a litigator who wrote notes discouraging others from litigation and castigating his fellow litigators as fiends, at least the ones who would essentially stir up trouble in order to gin up business for themselves. So he was a litigator who essentially advocated against litigation, and he was a wartime president who advocated for peace. I was hoping maybe you could sort of sketch out for us how his character was formed over those years. Is this something that he seemed to have been born with, or did his his attitude or stance towards peacemaking and reconciliation change over time? Lincoln spent 24 years as a lawyer, only 12 years in elected political office. I was talking with a whole large group of lawyers virtually on Wednesday in Dallas. And the second note that I use in the book is his so-called notes for a lecture to lawyers. We don't believe he ever gave the lecture, but it's notes to prepare to give a lecture. And in the center of these notes is he makes the assertion, the lawyer is a, as a peacemaker is a good person. So although Lincoln is thought of as the war president, he had to become commander in chief to win the civil war. He was really looking forward to the second term because he thought he was a better peace president than a war president. And I think he learned this from being a lawyer that you have to, first of all, respect and try to understand the point of view of your opponent, understand it not simply intellectually, but experientially. And so to go to court or to go to law was what was the watchwords of people on the frontier in Illinois. And Lincoln made the observation, you may win the case, but you will lose your friend, you will lose the community, and the so-called winner, he says in these notes, will end up being the loser. And isn't that true in our litigious society? Mm -hmm. So I think Lincoln, the lawyer, is very much a part of his formation of how he understands peacemaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the empathy that you mentioned right then is also a hallmark of these notes. It seems like he is frequently trying to understand the point of view of his antagonist or his enemy or his cabinet member or his wife, as it (laughs) might be. Where did that come from? Because I, I can't imagine that empathy would necessarily have been the chief virtue in backwoods Kentucky. Well, Lincoln's on a journey. And I think we need to really understand that journey. Uh, Sometimes we take someone's words, I think we're doing this right now today, oh, so-and-so said this in 1994, 
and not recognizing that we're all on a journey. And part of that journey is a faith journey. He's born in Kentucky, moves with his family as a young boy to Southern Indiana. His parents attend Baptist churches there. They're very, very emotional. It's part of what we call the second great awakening. And Lincoln is turned off by that emotion. He does what a lot of young people do then and now. He rejects the faith of his parents. He becomes, in his own words, a fatalist. If there is a God, it's a kind of a deistic God, a watchmaker who doesn't enter into history. But then when life tumbles in, the death of Eddie, the first son in 1850, at age three and a half, the death of Willie at age 11, and then the crucible of the Civil War, as a young man, Lincoln's humor could hurt. His satire could bite. He did not have that kind of empathy. So I believe that the journey he's on, which is really ultimately a faith journey, endows him with a much greater sense of empathy, which we then see at the end of his life in the second inaugural address, when he offers such reconciliation to the people of the South. You, know, you mentioned the second inaugural address, and I think one of the most poignant and compelling fragments that you include in your work are include his meditations on the divine will. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on this fragment and how Lincoln changed his mind in seeking to come to better understand the divine will. Well, I think life tumbles in for all of us, the death of the two boys, then the crucible of the Civil War. Lincoln very privately is asking himself the question, where is God in the midst of the Civil War? The will of God prevails. In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, notice how he underlines key words, and one must be wrong. Here we see the logical Lincoln at work. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. And then this extremely profound sentence, in the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. Everyone was coming to Lincoln to say, God is on our side. He knew they were coming to Jefferson Davis to say, God is on our side. Yet, God uses the instrumentalities working just as they are to affect his purpose. Lincoln goes on to say in this meditation, by the way, he didn't title it. John Hay, his young secretary, found this meditation, this fragment after Lincoln's death, and Hay gave it the title. At the end of the fragment, we hear, we read the words, yet the contest proceeds. He could give the victory to either side any day, but the contest proceeds. My goodness, Lincoln, you're the commander in chief. You're supposed to be winning this war. What do you mean God could give the victory to either side any day? Lincoln never said these words out loud. But if you think about it, they really are the background, the foundation for the second inaugural address which he will deliver two and a half years later. Now, no one at that audience in March 4, 1865 knew of this address. It would only surface decades later. But this is one more clue as to why the private Lincoln helps us understand the public Lincoln. Yeah, that's fascinating, Ron. And one of, the, one of the things that one sort of notices is the extent to which he wrestled intensely, intellectually, spiritually, 
there's not only a real depth of reflection, but there's also a pretty remarkable reticence and silence. As you noted, he didn't intend for anyone to see these notes. There's some profound thoughts there, but they're all kept under lock and key. And one can't help but think, gosh, what a contrast to our current approach to public discourse, which if anything has a bias towards just an onslaught of the rapid response, one-upmanship, usually necessarily shallow just because of the volume and quantity. And I'm curious, given your focus on character formation and leadership, how does that affect one's leadership ability? Well, let's put that question in context. Lincoln serves one term in Congress. He takes a very unpopular stand against the war in Mexico, challenging President Polk, telling him, you sit where George Washington sat. Polk had argued that the Mexicans started the war. And Lincoln says, that's absolutely untrue. I'm quite convinced the Americans started the war and you're trying to shift the blame. So Lincoln comes home and many of his constituents say, thank you very much. We're not going to elect you again. (laughs) So he he becomes a lawyer full time for five years. Then the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed in 1854. This act will allow slavery to now advance into the new territories, Kansas, Nebraska, if people simply vote for it. And Lincoln is appalled by this. You can vote for something as immoral as slavery, but he does not, as you suggest, come charging right out into the fray. Rather, he takes several months, what I call holding his fire, preparing himself before he will speak. And during those three months, he does a lot of reading. And some of that reading then translates into the fragments. Some of that reticence has not always been interpreted quite as favorably, especially (laughs) in recent years, as you sort of just indicated. And in fact, there have been, there seem to be a growing number of Lincoln detractors. I think just in the last couple months, the San Francisco School District renamed their high school, believing that Lincoln had not gone far enough in his policies towards ending the oppression of African-Americans. And as someone who has studied Lincoln for most of your life, and knows him as well as anyone, I'd be interested in your thoughts on you know, this, this growing wave of criticism about sort of a lack of a sufficiently forceful pushback to oppression. Well, I think what's happening says more about us than it does about Lincoln. Let's take another flashpoint. It is the so-called Freedmen's Memorial, dedicated in 1876. The speaker is Frederick Douglass. And many people have taken Frederick Douglass's early words in that address, where he calls Lincoln the white man's president, and then they end their essay or their op-ed. They fail to get to the latter part of the address, where Frederick Douglass says, well, if he is the white man's president, he was fast, speedy, quick to take on this issue. Douglass offers him incredible praise. But we send up proof texting what someone says, we take a slice out of their life and we fail to recognize who they are in their time. I sometimes think we are afflicted by what I call moral superiority. We are so superior to all those poor people who lived before us. There's no humility in us, even there was if there was humility in them. And I don't think the people in San Francisco, in fact, I know this for a fact, they did not consult any historians 
The people in Chicago did not consult any historians to ask themselves, could you fill us in with a fuller understanding of who Abraham Lincoln was in this particular episode of his life? Ron, one of the things I would be most curious about is, you know, generally we personally are formed and we're changed by those we know. And any biographer generally knows their subject pretty well. You are have just released your fourth book on Abraham Lincoln. So I think it's fair to say that your, your knowledge, your familiarity with him is, is, is quite deep and long lasting. So how has your knowledge of, acquaintance with, clear regard for Lincoln changed your own life? And, you know, in particular, how has engaging so deeply with Lincoln's private thoughts approached your own view towards, towards engaging ideas? Well, Lincoln is a person in formation on a journey. And to live with Lincoln 24 hours a day as my wife, Cynthia, will say, I may forget something in 2021, but I sure know about 1861. So Lincoln's whole faith journey is so instructive for myself and others. His willingness to respect other people, his deep empathy and magnanimity expressed towards the South at the end of the Civil War. These are values that one would want to aspire for in one's own life. And to live with this person 24 hours a day for now a quarter of a century, I hope, I trust, it has had an impact on me as I try to make myself a bit more like the person that I'm studying. That's great. Thanks, Ron. And with that, Ron, the last word is yours. Well, all of us are familiar with the various crises that we are enduring, starting with the pandemic then the economic dislocation, hate against Asians, racial injustice, climate change, we could go on and on. But I think the one that concerns me because I'm really focused on young people is that during this pandemic, we've discovered young people have spent even more time on their screens, even more time. And the only way to do what Lincoln does is to allow ourselves the time to think, to contemplate, to write, This does not come quickly. This is not a text. This is not an email. And so I guess my learning or my plea would be to follow the example of Lincoln and to to get the diary, to to get a, a journal, to just spend the kind of time. This is what allows Lincoln's moral growth. Cherie, you've announced, and I love the way you say this again and again, the focus on character. Well, our own character is being formed. And how is it formed? It will be formed as we take the time to write out our own faith and spiritual journey. Ron, it is always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on faithful leadership. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of past events.